Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, March the 16th, 2021, and as a Tuesday is typical, we will be doing a Just Jack show where I take a subject and break it down. I've been doing more of those lately, and I want to let you know why. Occasionally, I will use a social media platform or something like that, and I will pull my audience, and I will say, what are your favorite shows? And inevitably, the solo shows and the expert counsel shows come to the top of the list, more so than interviews and more so than Q&A type shows. And uh, a lot of people seem to like the roundtable shows more where I think I pull some stuff out of modern you know, life and then mix it in. But really it's like these, these, these shows that we take a subject and tear it apart that seem to have the best response. So I try to give you more of what you respond well to. And it kind of makes sense because when the show started, for those that maybe are new to the podcast, for about 18 months I did this show in my car. And 90% of the shows were single issue, let's take this thing and tear it apart shows because... I couldn't really drive down the road answering questions, especially like phoning questions. I certainly couldn't do interviews. Uh, there was no expert counsel because the show had just gotten started. So it's the core of what we built it on. Today we're going to talk about something that my morning edition of the Miyagi Mornings video uh, made me think of. So I was asked today on MeWe, what is the difference between being an entrepreneur and a business owner? And um, I, I, when I responded to it with a video, I, I tossed in investor and, and those three aspects of things and looked at it. But it had me thinking about how much opportunity there is right now and that there has been for like since COVID started, there's been opportunity. I would say if there was a point in time that there wasn't a lot of opportunity, it was like in the first three to four weeks where everything was so freaked out, people were just figuring out like what they could and couldn't do. And I think there was even opportunity then. But boy, since we've gotten past that first freak out stage, I'm not going to say it would have came without sacrifice, including maybe moving somewhere where you have freedom to do more of the things I'm going to talk about today. But the opportunity has been enormous. I said this yesterday that like most of the people I know that are in business have done better in the last year than they've done at any year prior. I know Nicole Sauce has selling coffee. I know John Bush has selling Kratom and CBD and things like that. Um, Soltic CBD, I can't think of the name of the owner of that right now, but man, I really love their product, right? They have CBD, they have the other um, legal, you know, derivatives of the hemp plant. Uh, they have a lot of other stuff. I just brought them on as, an, as a discount vendor. They launched their business kind of right into this. And, and you know, I know you're like, well, that's, you know, that's CBD, right? Okay, well, okay, Nicole's in coffee. Uh, my buddy Brian Black over at ITS Tactical had the best year he's ever had. TSP, I know, yes, we're in the preparedness industry, but we had the best year that we ever had. Should I mention, though, that TSP was started in 2008, right before the biggest financial crisis of modern times, until now, and I knew it was coming, and I did it anyway? Yes, yes, it was the preparedness space, but you're still talking about somebody who had a position as a partner in multiple companies whose life was basically set like, even if we ended up laying off half our workforce, I wasn't going to get laid off, and I was paid very well. 
and I was working with one of the top entrepreneurs in the world as a partner, and yet I still walked away to do my own thing in the middle of a crisis. Why? Because crisis spells opportunity. And I don't mean in some kind of vulture-pick-the-bone sort of hedge fund way. I mean in a very simple way. Where there is fear, there is opportunity, simply because fear is a problem. And where there are problems, there are opportunities for, so, for those that can provide solutions who will act when others will not act. I mean, I want you to think about this. There were fortunes built in the middle of the Great Depression. Absolute fortunes. Some of the most successful businesses there are today, some of the greatest empires, even if they weren't started during the Depression, they actually boomed in the middle of the Depression. Um, I have been watching The Food That Built America. It's on, I think it's on Discovery. It's Discovery or History or one of those channels like that. It's freaking fascinating. But looking like what happened to, to companies like the Hershey Company and the, and the Mars Company, candy companies during the Great Depression, they exploded. They figured out how to offer things in a way that made sense to people when times were hard. And there's so many other examples like that. There were fortunes made during the middle of World War II. There were fortunes made in the middle of World War I. There were fortunes made in the middle of Prohibition. Times were booming, but there were people that went counter to the culture and made fortunes in the whole world of speakeasies. But that's illegal. I don't care. I'm telling you they did it. There's so much opportunity. And what I want to lead with today is a quote. And this is by Andy Stanley. He said, whenever there is fear, there is opportunity. When there is great fear, there is great opportunity. And this sort of kind of plays in with a very famous quote by Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett once said, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. The thing is, Buffett was speaking specifically of investing. When everybody's pouring money in, that's when you sell. When everybody's selling, that's when you buy. And you follow that advice with investing, you can do fairly well if you put a modicum of sense along with it. Because sometimes, sometimes buying when others are selling is trying to catch a falling knife with no handle and a blade on both sides. Maybe you shouldn't do that. Really sharp. The Patrick Rorman sharpened that's double-edged. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Don't do that. But when you add the modicum of intelligence to that advice from Buffett, it's very good investing advice. But what I liked about the Stanley quote is it was more broad. It may be that you could apply that to investing in stocks or you know shorting a, you know precious metals or you know cryptocurrency investing or anything that's like a raw pure form of I buy this thing I hold this thing I sell this thing or I I take a position against this thing so that when it goes down I profit. But in the way that I'm speaking about it today, when has there been in your life a time of greater fear? When have you looked out at society? and seeing more people living in more fear on their day-to-day -day lives for honestly no good reason than right now. The people most afraid of COVID right now are the people least at risk from it. They really are. I, I mean, there's some, you know, there are old people that are constantly fearful, and I, I feel for those people. I really hope I don't become one. But in general, I've spoken to a lot of people that are in what can be considered high-risk groups that are like, I'm 92, whatever. Right? It's people that are like 30 that have been terrified by the TV set that think if they, if they step outside for 37 seconds without a mask on, they're going to literally get COVID and immediately end up dead. 
there, there's people that I, I think that they have inflated the already inflated death number in their minds to the point where they are paranoid about everything. I'm amazed when I go out in the state of Texas, where we no longer have any mask mandates, by the way. Somebody should inform Bank of America that of that. Um, boy, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. We won't go into that today, though. But when I go out and I free breathe, that's sad that there's a, there's a name for what we are now. We're free breathers. And I walk around in a store or something, and I look around at people wearing masks. And you, you lose a lot of the expression, but you see the eyes. And you see the fear in their eyes. Not necessarily because they're looking at me going, oh, my God, he's breathing air. We're all going to die. Like They're not even looking at me. They don't even see me. They're just looking around, and they look in constant and total fear. Well, when you have fear, you have a problem. When you have a problem, you have an opportunity. You can either take opportunity by directly addressing the problem. People have this problem. This is the way we generally think of it from an entrepreneurship mindset. People have this problem. They can't get widget A to work, so I will make a adapter for widget A so that it will. I'll make the B adapter for widget A, and now it will work, and I'll sell that. And you can you can take that into you know services or products. It doesn't matter. That's typically how people think of opportunities are there when there are problems. There's other ways to take advantage of problems, though. That is to do what others will not, to provide things that others will no longer do for themselves. And we'll get into some specific things that I think are opportunities right now, but I just want to open up with that. I want you to think about that. Like, if there is a problem, you have opportunities, and you don't have an opportunity. It's not like there's a problem, therefore there's an opportunity. When there is a problem, there are many opportunities in relation to directly or indirectly to that problem. And when a problem is mass hysteria and fear of the general population, there are literally thousands of problems this creates, and therefore there are thousands of solutions to those problems that are somewhat direct. Widget A doesn't work, so adapter B makes it work. And there are then tens of thousands of peripheral opportunities. Since people are afraid, I can do this thing that they won't do for themselves anymore. Or I can go out and provide this service at a time when most people are afraid to start a business. And therefore, there's less competition. And therefore, I get a greater piece of the pie. You see how that works. I think before we go forward, though, we should talk about how have we become so fearful as a species? You, you you can say, well, they took COVID and they lathered it and they used it and they, you know, washed, rinsed, repeated enough time on the air. And that's why people are walking around with an anal swab sticking out of their ass and 17 masks on. But I, I really think if COVID had occurred about, let's say, 1990, even go back to 1985, right? In 1985, if this had happened... And if it had been handled, you know, without the Internet, obviously, but exactly the same way, or even if we had the Internet in 85, if we just had the mentality people had in 85, and they tried to do what they've done with COVID in 2020, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked. My grandfather would have walked around with his cane, knocking people in the head for wearing a mask outside walking down the street on a sunny day. I mean, honest to God, he would have. That tough old bastard would have never tolerated this. And his children would not have tolerated this back then. And, and as a grandchild, I certainly, not only would I have not tolerated it, I would have been tolerated for tolerating it. So what happened between, let's say, the 80s and the current time that we're in that's enabled all this? It's enabled a lot of the crazy shit 
Like the idea that we're banning certain books from Dr. Seuss that have been around for 70 or more years is, I know it doesn't seem directly related, but is directly related to this fearful mindset. It is the sum, this, this, the summation of really the last 50 years in earnest of our education system in conjunction with our media. We have conditioned people to be obedient. We have domesticated people. And I want you to think about a difference here. If you take a domesticated animal and you put it in a state of fear, it will cower, it will crouch, it will hide. It will only attack when it really believes there's no other opportunity, no other alternative, and sometimes not even then. Take the same animal, the same creature, the same species as a wild animal and put it in that situation and it will immediately, once its retreat is cut off, go into, in general, an attack mode. I saw a kid one time. I thought it was pretty funny. He didn't get hurt, so it was really funny. I saw a kid at a baseball field in Pennsylvania and there were a bunch of groundhogs like out eating. So this kid sneaks up on him. He runs up to him, right? And there's like a The, the field, you know, the, he's on the outside of the fence. So the fence for the field that you would hit a ball over a home run is behind the groundhogs. Well, like, there were like four of them, like three of them jetted, and he cornered one up against the fence, and he's there laughing at it. So that groundhog kind of like stands up, and you could see it in his head. You could, it's just a groundhog, it's a big rat. Just like, and then he like got down on the ground, and he went at that kid. He chased that freaking kid. And that kid ran his ass off to get away from that, you know, like, 10-pound groundhog. And it's probably a good idea because the groundhog would have tore him up if it would have got a hold of him. Because it was in a mindset of, okay, if we're going to do this, I ain't, you know, I'm designed to fight off a coyote trying to pull me out of a hole. I don't know what you think you're doing, kid, but I'm going to kick your ass. If you domesticate an animal, that's not what happens. Even if it doesn't want to be touched or whatever, you have to go all the way up to the point where you're like, really cornering it, and then you get bit in the hand or something. It doesn't come storming out at somebody that's 20 times bigger than it if it's been domesticated. We have a fearful species as human beings because the, the goal has long been of the elite and the powerful to fully domesticate the human being. They're domesticating you the way we have domesticated the dog or the chicken is probably more accurate or the cow. You are a feral being. You are a wild creature. You are not supposed to cower in front of a master. When challenged, you are supposed to fight back. But no, we've been domesticated. And we've primarily been domesticated through a multi-generational system that we call education and media. So that each group became slightly more domesticated than the prior group. Okay? And then that group taught its prodigy to listen to the same authority that domesticated it. To now we're into a good three generations of wholly and fully domesticated people. And this largely began with the people we think of as the toughest people. Our grandparents, or if you're a little younger than me, maybe your great-grandparents, the World War II generation, my grandfather's generation. Because I'll tell you what they had going on. They really believed, you know, they lived through the Depression the advent of the world, first, the Second World War and through the Second World War. And they had parents that had lived through the, the, the Depression of the early 1900s, through Prohibition, 
through boom and bust, right, and, and was were parenting them or had just recently, you know, send them off to live their own life because you left house at like 18 back then in the middle of the Depression and World War II. But they believed things like when the government said, hey, we got to go off the gold standard, that, like they were actually helping. When they were asked to ration and sacrifice, they believed they were actually helping. And in, in many ways, they were. If you wanted to win the war, we did have to ration certain things. We did have to deal with shortages. But that conditioned them, whether it was intentional or not, that conditioned them that, hey, the people in charge, they really are out for our best and for our benefit. And they had, despite the fact that they would have been the first people to start pulling, you know, freaking ass clown Congress people out of their chairs if you tried to lock them down, they did have an authority complex. When the government, when a teacher, when a doctor, right, when anybody in a perceived position of authority said you needed to do something, they were generally saying, well, you better do it. You better do it. And we wouldn't be telling you to do it if it's not the right thing to do. The variance was their threshold for how far that would go. So they took this mindset of listening to authority, and they tried to hand it down to the baby boomers. Well, the baby boomers turned into the anti-war hippies, with good reason, by the way. But they, we all tend to drift from our parents and then come back to them. So the boomers became, as they aged and got out of the Woodstock phase, incredibly compliant And their threshold was much further away than their parents was before they would call the line. They, of course, raised my generation, Generation X. The latchkey kids. The kids that raised ourselves, and we really did. The last really free generation is children. And we are an enigma. Gen X is an enigma. We are made up of the most defiant sons of bitches alive on the planet today. You know, other than toddlers, right? So full-grown ass men and women. And we are among the most compliant. We are a split. We are a split in compliance and defiance. More than I, I really believe this more than any other generation. It's not ego, it's just an observation. Because that means we have incredibly compliant members of this generation too. So it's not like we're better. We, of course, raised the millennials and now what they're calling Gen Y. And now we have gotten this, this group of children who many in Gen X who raised ourselves, we overcompensated as parents for. We were like, I'm going to be at all the, all the baseball games and all the football games. My kid's not going to be a latchkey kid. And many of us became way too much of helicopter parents. And while all this was going on, in the background, the education system was getting more and more and more in line with domesticating us. Because not only was the plan to do that, But they, the teachers, are people too. They went from being World War II generation teachers to Baby Boomer One to Boomer Two to tweeners to Gen X. And eventually, now we have millennials teaching Gen Y in our school system in a system that even if you're defiant, you're going to be mostly compliant as a teacher if you're going to keep your job. So if you're compliant, you're going to be really compliant. And there we are. And there we are. We have a domesticated society. That's why we're fearful. So what can you do about it? There's, In my opinion, there's only three real things that I can tell you to do about how fearful society is. Number one, personally, you opt out of living in fear. You just, you just stop. You just say, I'm not going to do this. And I know that sounds like overly simplified, but 
everything in life that seems complicated generally starts with a simple decision, then sometimes the decision is enough. Sometimes the decision requires a little bit to prevent backsliding, almost like a 12-step program for an alcoholic or something, right? Like maybe you need a sponsor, I don't know. But you just like basically say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do this <laughs> anymore. If, I, if there is a real reason to be cautious, then I will be cautious, but I'm not living in fear. When all this shit kicked up, I had people actually asking me, like, well, what are you guys going to do about your grandkids? And I'm like, what do you mean, what are we going to do about our grandkids? Well, don't you guys watch them every day? Yeah. So what are you going to do about it? Uh, keep watching them? And they're going to go back and forth to their parents. I even had some people suggest, well, what? Well, maybe what you should have them do is live with you and not see their parents. Like, are you insane? Are you out of your mind? I wasn't going to live in fear. I just decided I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. Looked at the risk of the virus, especially once we, you know, when it first showed up, we weren't really sure. We knew it definitely hurt older people worse, but we really didn't know. Like once we had about 30 days worth of data, if you were afraid of this thing as a relatively healthy person, you were a domesticated beast doing what you were told versus a free thinking individual thinking for yourself. So that is an example of opting out of living in fear. I've got pictures from when everybody was in total, complete breakdown of fear with this, of my grandkids and my wife and I hanging out at our back pond fishing and listening to classic rock music and being goofy because we're not going to live in fear. Opt out of living in fear. Next, accept that you cannot do very much to wake up others except by being an example. Stop trying to red pill people. That day has come and gone. It's over. There's nothing you can do for the love of God. Give up. Now, people are like, but Jack, what about the people? They're not going to freaking wake up. If you're not awake now, you're not ever going to. And if you are, it will not be somebody telling you to do so that makes it happen. It will be at some point, maybe you'll get tired of the boot stepping on your face forever and push the boot off and then stick out a hand and say, help me. When the person does that, you can be of help. This is, again, going back to an analogy with a drug or an alcohol problem. There are people, no matter how much they have of a substance abuse problem, they must hit rock bottom and ask for help before you can do anything. No intervention, no nothing will help. All it will do is make it worse, and you have to wait out that person and hope they don't die. Well, with this, they're not going to die most likely, but they're going to waste their life. You have to hope that they stop wasting their life and ask for help. You will make yourself nothing but miserable if you're trying to remove other people's fear when they're not ready to let go of them. And then you will not be able to take the opportunities because you'll be spending all your energy and all your time telling other people what they should be doing. And what you become is the person yelling at other people to install smoke alarms while your house is burning. So don't. Just let it go and understand your actions Always have spoken louder than your words, and it's never been more true than right here. And then find opportunity and take it, take advantage of it while others are, quote, waiting for things to get better, end quote. Those are the worst words when I was a consultant that you could have ever said to me, waiting for things to get better or waiting for things to get better. When I was a consultant and a, and a business person who wanted to engage with me, 
used that phrase or any version of it, I was like, I'm done. Can't help you. Like, what? Well, clearly I care about your business more than you do because I'm not willing to sit around and wait for things to get better. And all of my advice is going to be predicated on the fact that right now things are not better and that we're better off positioning your business before they get better and doing the right things now and making your business successful while things are bad so it will explode when things get good again. But if you are waiting for it to get better, then you're not ready for me. I can't help you. You're not asking for help. You're asking for, basically, you want to pay me while your business is hurting to sit around and commiserate and intellectually masturbate with you. And that's not my deal. That's not my game. That's not what I do. So that's what you do. You stop living in fear. You accept that you can't do much to change others except be an example. And you find opportunities in your own life. They can be business They can be personal growth. They can be, you know, just building your life so it's resilient. They can be having a lot of fun. I don't care what it is, but you find your opportunities and you capitalize them when others won't do it. That's what makes it an opportunity. There's people like, you know, I'd like to do this thing, but there's too much competition. Okay, so you're not very good at it. That's, a, that's my response to that one. There's too much competition. Well, then you're not any good at it. Because like, if there's a lot of competition, that means there's a lot of opportunity. There's a big market. If you were really good, if you were top 10%, you should be able to take 10% at least of your local market. That should be plenty if it's a big market. right? And those same people, right? when when the crisis hits and a lot of the competition goes away because they were all people that kind of just lived on that rising tide floating all boats and had no plan for the tide to go out, then there's a huge opportunity to go in and start taking you know that that depleted market now and then they also say well I'm gonna wait for times to get better they're the same people that are like you know Bitcoin's too high drops through the floor well I can't buy it now why not because look how look it crashed oh okay and you just walk away from that so let me give you an example of being brave and this is a business standpoint from expert council member Nicole sauce Right when all this COVID shit started, she was doing okay with her roasting business. She was at that point, though, where, like, you're either going to really ramp it up or you're not. COVID hits. She knows she's got an opportunity because people want comfort in a time of crisis. That's an opportunity. And she knows there might be shortages of beans. And when you buy green coffee beans before you roast them, they last forever damn near. So she realizes, I can go all in right now and buy enough inventory to make it through the rest of the year. And that way, if there's shortages, and there may be, and there were, I won't get caught by one. But if I go all in now and my business drops, I've sunk this capital. And she's talking to me about it. So do you believe in yourself? Didn't even let her answer it. Didn't even let her answer it. Just do you believe in yourself? Change the subject. Next thing I know, I went all in. I'm going to do this. And she had an incredible year. Ran a Kickstarter toward the end of the year, expanded her operation, and already exceeded the expansion capacity. Because you're brave when others are fearful, so you're capitalizing on opportunity when others are afraid to. That is what we're talking about today. I want you to understand that fortunes were built during the Great Depression. I mentioned this, like this, this show I've been watching um, called the, the Food That Built America. Unbelievable. Um, my wife's actually enjoying it. It's not the type of thing that she would usually like. So in this, this show, like I was watching the one about Hershey's. 
And when the Great Depression hit, Hershey was like, we're not laying off a single worker. And his profits hit an all-time high by the middle of the Depression. When other companies were falling apart. Now, he did not have any problems. He had a worker revolt. I think one of the things that Hershey made a big mistake was, you know, he didn't do the Jack Welsh model. He didn't walk his floor every day and talk to people every day, and he got too far away from his own people. And his own people had no idea what he had done for them. As he built Hershey, Pennsylvania, like a company town, they thought it was an extravagance. They didn't you know, kind of connect the dots like, hey, your brother has a job because he did this other shit. So they went nuts, and there was a bunch of rioting and, 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 and what have you. But in the end, he still became an empire. And really, the true empire was built in the middle of the Great Depression. And there, if you watch that show, it's totally worth watching. There's, there's other examples of that of places where either the fortune was built during the Depression or the groundwork that became the fortune was built in the middle of the Depression. There were opportunities. Some of the people that did that, what they figured out was, hey, you know, the guy that made the first Cheetos, I can't remember his name now, but he was from uh, San Antonio, Texas. And he was able, and but it wasn't Cheetos at the time, it was Fritos. So here's this is an example of somebody taking an opportunity where others don't see it. So anyway, he... Uh, they have this little store, and they're not really making any money. This is prior to the, to the war and uh, in the Depression era. And he comes across this little Mexican dude who's making, like, the precursor to the Frito. And uh, he basically is grinding up corn and extruding it and cutting it and dropping it into oil and frying it. So he, he talks to his family, and they scrape up 100 bucks. Uh, it was either his wife or his his mom pawn they ponder ring to get enough money to buy the, all the equipment and the instructions and the recipe for a hundred bucks from this little Mexican guy. So they do that, and it starts they start selling really well in his store. Except you can't make that many, and he develops a press that makes them faster and start. And eventually, has a factory and he's he's just booming. Eventually, he's moved across the whole Southwest. He's in like ten states. He develops a packaging that keeps these things fresh, right? And they're high in calories. War hits. War hits. There's immediately rationing on core ingredients, including corn. And this spells disaster for 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 you know the Fritos. And he realizes there's a problem. Hence, there's an opportunity. He gets in touch with Quartermaster General, manages to get them to get samples of his product, and says, hey, these things last for damn near ever. They're high in energy. They have more calories per pound than meat. Your soldiers will eat them, and they won't hate them. You can ship them over. They're lightweight. And, as, and, and what ends up happening is the war department decides we're going to make Fritos part of our rations to our troop. Well, that made the Frito-Lay company part of the war effort and exempt from rations. And so he was able to stay in business domestically and by selling to the War Department. Grew like crazy. And, of course, when the war ended, he was ripe to become an empire at that point. Because all those soldiers came home and they remembered those Fritos were one of the few decent things in their rations. Eventually, he ended up and Lay's... Uh, did kind of the same thing at the same time, and eventually those two companies worked together and merged and became Frito-Lay Corporation. And both of them worked through the war situation in a very similar manner. Now, 
that is building something at a time when people are like, man, this is the worst time to do something ever. And then people will look back and go, well, look, it was easy. All they did was get, you know, in touch with the War Department and sell them on Fritos. And then they got, you know, as many orders as they could handle. Yeah, you think you would have been able to do that if you hadn't laid the groundwork before the crisis hit where you could take advantage of the opportunity? You see how that works? So, I mean, if you look at it in all things, it's people who take action when others fear to do so that benefit. Look at anybody holding a significant amount of cryptocurrency today. You know, unless you are, an, uh, um, unless you are some sort of billionaire like an Elon Musk or something that decides all of a sudden you're going to pour a bunch of money in as a speculative thing. Most people that are sitting on you know hundred thousand, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand or more in cryptocurrency today, they bought it when it was cheap. They bought it when people were screaming tulip mania. They went counter to the general belief system, etc. And they benefited from it. Now, you don't always win. But if you're smart and you're intelligent and you mitigate your risk, and you take instead of taking one giant risk, you take lots of risks that are mitigated, the ones that pay off so exceed the ones that don't, that you end up doing much better than those who are risk-adverse and fearful. Um, here's some ideas for side hustles and entrepreneurship that I think right now there's nothing holding you back. And I'm going to go quick because none of these are really that important. They're just mindset. Um, I've been talking about this a lot lately, but I think hip camp, Airbnb, tiny home rentals, etc. Things that instead of going out and buying a house and saying I'm going to Airbnb it, figuring out what can I do with what I have or... Let me go ahead and buy that dream property I've always wanted and make it pay for itself. There's a tremendous opportunity there right now. I know people right now just killing it with like hip camp stuff. Hip camp is like Airbnb for campsites. They can be primitive campsites or they can be glamping campsites. They can be whatever and in between. And, you know, if you have a few acres of ground and you have kind of a like a wood lot or something and you kind of have a place that like between where you live and where you can set things like this up, there's no real visibility and a person can feel like they're out in the middle of the woods. How much better is this for a camper than let's say a state park, which may or may not be closed right now, by the way. But if you know, if you have, especially if you have a decent piece of land with a decent sound buffer and that person's sitting out there listening to music at 10 o'clock at night, some Karen at the next campsite's not bitching about it. You can get away. People want to get away. I'm telling you, when I did the fall workshop, it blew my mind. We sold more tickets than I've ever been willing to sell before, and we sold out in 10 minutes. And it was only 10 minutes because I kept adding seats. Like once I figured out, like, okay, this person's carpooling, and this person is a couple, so they're in one vehicle, and this person's taking a taxi or whatever, like, okay, I can do five more. And I put up five more, and I would put it up, and they would be gone. It was insane. But it wasn't because, oh, Jack's built such a great business and people want to come. It's a piece of it. But I've had a great business. I've had people that want to come. We've sold out in 15 minutes. We've sold out in 45 minutes. We never sold out like that before because there's pent-up demand. So I think that in that type of space, there's tons of demand. And if you can create things that people can do, if I right now found a piece of land I wanted to buy, and let's say it was like 50 acres or more, and it was ideal for like setting ponds up and stuff, I would set up campsites, I would put in ponds, I would stock the shit out of them, and I would charge people to fish by the inch. 
You know, like catfish have to be at least 14 inches, and it's a dollar an inch to keep fish. And it's $5 a rod to fish, something like that. I would sell bait, and I'd have campsites, and I'd have some kid run it for me so I didn't have to talk to people and deal with people's bullshit. If I had to deal with somebody's bullshit, it's probably the case that my, my helper's getting fired. Counseled once or twice and then fired, and a new one will be replaced. That would be one example of things that I would you know, think about doing right now. I have a buddy, and we're kind of eyeballing some surrounding properties, and we're thinking about, you know, kind of little, a little tiny house kingdom somewhere on one of those surrounding properties, pretty far from where he and I would live. Why? Because it makes sense. Because people want to live these alternative lifestyles. Many people want to live in a tiny house, but maybe they shouldn't, and they don't really know, so why not rent one for 90 days? You know, long-term rentals, et cetera. And one of the beauties of going through like a hip camp or an Airbnb and stuff, yes, you give up some money and all. You expand your market. But what you really do is you don't have tenants. You don't have tenants. And that means if you need to get rid of somebody, they're out. It's like an insurance. That, that, when, I, when I heard that, I'm like, okay, that's why I wouldn't go direct, right? Like when I heard, like, and I, I confirmed this with, with a good friend, a family friend who works for the Tarrant County Sheriff's Department, um, What, what Brian from Washington said about this was true, and he said absolutely, that basically if I have somebody that's an Airbnb or a hip camp or something like that and they become a problem, I want them off my land, that, yes, that he will show up, he will tell them to leave, and if they don't leave, he will grab them by the neck and throw them over the fence. And then if they come back, they will go to, they will go to jail. Well, you know, again, I would prefer a stateless society. And I want to point out that the fact that a person who I'm renting to short-term can claim that they are a tenant and need to be evicted and get 90 days of living on my property for free, that only exists because of the same system I'm utilizing to get them off my property. So the state created the problem, and therefore, in this case, properly angled the state as the solution. So uh, that's more of an acceptance of reality than, uh, than being happy about it. Um, I think for higher construction assembly work, is a great thing, like saying setting up sheds, like prefab sheds and stuff like that. And again, Brian, who talked to me about the advantage of doing hip camp or Airbnb versus having a tenant, um, was doing this too, right? This guy's a serial entrepreneur. And, but that doesn't mean that everybody needs to do all the things that he was doing. But basically, it works like this. Like, you get the basic tools you need, and, you know, Home Depot, Lowe's, whatever, sells a 16 by 20 shed, You go pick it up with a truck and a trailer, and your tools, maybe you have a helper, maybe you don't, depending on how big of a structure you're building, and you go set it up, and you get paid, and you do it again, and you get paid, and you do it again, and you get paid. And I can't remember the name of the company. There's a whole company that's set up for nothing but doing sheds, and there's other things like that. So that's the kind of thing that like it marries into handyman work. So you can be a handyman, you use this to finance your tools, and you take other jobs that are direct as well as take these jobs. And every shed that you set up, you're like, hey, you know anything else around here needs doing? Here's my card. Because the way these are set up, if you go after, like, if they're going to have another shed and you go direct, you're in circumvention and violation of your contract. But if they need gutters put in, you're not. So that's an opportunity. I mean, right now, I think, it, you know, if you don't have money and you have a car, you should be doing Grubhub, Uber Eats, Amazon Delivery, some, some kind of shit like that. That business is booming. It's absolutely booming. And, like, the food delivery ones, they get around, like, you have to have a certain age of car and, and whatever and to, to do uh, Uber or Lyft or whatever. But you don't have to really worry about that shit if you're delivering somebody's tacos. So, and I know 
people that do that that make $200 in a weekend. And they don't really do it to do it. They basically set up so they can do it. They turn their alert system on. And while they're out and about doing their shit, if there's one that pays well, they take it. And if it doesn't pay well, they don't take it. They let somebody else have it. I mean, it's, it is an opportunity to make cash and then pour that cash into something else uh, or eliminate debt or what have you. Food production, I think we talk about this a lot, but I think there's more opportunity right now in producing food one way or another that is an alternative to mass-produced junk than there's probably ever been. There's greater awareness. There's greater demand. There's people pent up at home. They want to be seen doing these things. They want to share with their friends that, hey, I'm using this local person, whatever. But I think the layup that most people aren't doing is like a co-op type delivery service. Everybody wants to get a farm and grow lettuce and tomatoes and peppers and whatever. I think the person that, I think this is like, when people were trying to strike it rich in the gold rushes. And there were people that, you know, they, they sold all their shit, they packed up the wagon, and they went to California to be a 49er, minor, right? And some of those people struck it rich. There were other people that saw the opportunity in, you know, I can go where all these miners are, set up a tent, throw some tables and chairs in it, call it a bar, a drinking tent, serve sandwiches, and go from there. And next thing you know, they were turning the tent into a permanent structure. They were attaching a little general store to it, and they were selling the miners' pitch picks and shovels and stuff like that. And even when those towns kind of went ghost town, a lot of those merchants had made tons of money because not every miner found gold, but every miner needed a pick and a shovel. And I think in the world of food production, the co-op delivery model is you find the best producers in your area and you focus on the thing that they're almost never good at, customers. Because where you can find a, a producer that you say, I need 20 dozen of these every week. And then they can just do that. And you say, when can't you do it? Like if it's seasonal, when can't you do it? Okay, great. This Your season for this runs from March to September. What can you do from October to March? And a lot of them will say, I don't know. Figure it out. And that what that lets you do is basically have a catalog that you offer. And now you're in food delivery, but it's your food, your delivery, your customers, your relationships, your supply lines versus Uber Eats. And I think there's so much opportunity in that. And I think if you want to be a farmer, that's probably a great first step because – Then as you start producing, you have a client base to drop the product into, and, you're, and if you have a crop failure, you still have other things to sell that client base. In fact, the more suppliers of the more diversity that you have, the more stable you are. Because if somebody has a failure, you have other options that you can offer into that catalog of delivery. Um, I also think, I've talked about this before, and I think there's tremendous opportunity in like guide services. And that would be hunting and fishing. I think those are great opportunities. I think th those industries were largely unaffected by COVID as far as to the negative. In some instances, they've been ex ex blown up. One of my best friends locally is a fishing guide named Omar. He runs Luck O the Irish Guide Service. If you want to take a fishing trip somewhere in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you should contact Omar at Luck O the Irish Fishing Guide Service. And if you want to go fishing in a couple months, you should contact him now because he's one of my best friends. And I barely ever get to fish with him. And I pay him. It's not like I ask him to take me out for free. 
He's just booked all the time. So there is that type of... But there's also other types of guide services. And I think that there is... There is businesses waiting to happen in things like, you know, guided nature walks. Um, I think in some areas, some natural areas, there's probably hidden gems that people don't know about. And I think there's multiple ways to attack that. I think in cities and stuff like that, at least that aren't locked down, there's opportunities there. I know a guy, well, I don't know him personally. I know of a guy that I found through another guy that I do know a little bit in real life, uh, on YouTube is fishing guy. And these two guys kind of hooked up and did some cross promotion. And all. But the one I'm thinking of is a good dude named Bama beach bum. That's his YouTube channel. So he obviously fishes the beaches of Alabama. He doesn't have a boat. He doesn't have a boat. He fishes in the surf. Mostly he does some other stuff too, but mostly his whole shtick is you go down to the surf and you know what's running and you know how to rig up for it. And you set up some rod holders, you cast a bunch of rods out and you fish like tons of other people do. Well, he built a presence for himself online, and he now does guided fishing trips that are surf fishing trips, and he charges almost as much as a guide with a boat charges. Now, I don't know if you've ever run a boat, but even a modest boat operation, you know, going out, you know, a couple miles and back, burns a lot of freaking very expensive gas. And I don't know if you've ever owned a boat, but if you own a boat, they break. Shit goes wrong. Now you can't take a trip. Now you have an expense. There's an old saying of boat owners, right? We all we all come to agree with it eventually if you're a boat owner, sooner or later. A boating a boat is a floating hole into which you throw money. So as a fishing guy, the main reason you would have a boat is because, well, you need a boat to get people to pay you to take them fishing. Apparently not. That's an example of a guide service that even though it is fishing guide, which is if I say guide, you probably think hunting fishing, especially in this audience. But it's unconventional, isn't it? It's extremely unconventional. Now, he lives near the beach, so his commute is short. Unless you know, a lot of weather events that would shut down a guide service don't shut down this guide service. right? You can have weather that's inclement enough to shut things down. But, again, knowing a lot of fishing guides in my life, I know my buddy Hal, before he passed away, he probably had to cancel half his scheduled trips, especially this time of year, March, April in Texas, just due to wind. It's just too rough to be safe and comfortable on the lake. Bama Beach Bum doesn't care. Right? So much easier. There's room. Nobody falls in. Nobody has to wear a life jacket. Great business. There's lots of opportunities like that. And I think that whether it's business, whether it's just building your own life, whatever, the most important thing here when it comes to the entire subject today of being bold in the face of fear is your mindset. So what I want to finish up with is the six steps that in my mind are necessary for mindset to have the right mindset at this time to build real wealth, whether, again, it's through business or through lifestyle design Because there's people that have great lives and become incredibly wealthy, and they work for somebody else. They, they do. They have a job, but they like their job pretty much, and they do their job, and they're good at their job, and they make good money at their job, and then they just pour the money into the right things. So before I give you the six steps, I want to start out with what I mean by wealth. What do I mean by wealth? I don't mean having a shitload of money. That's a form of wealth. I don't mind having a shitload of money. I like having a shitload of money much more than only having a little bit of money, and I like a little bit of money more than I like no money. 
Money's important no matter how much people try to say it's not, but it's really not what wealth is about. What Buckminster uh, Fuller said of wealth is wealth should be numbered in, measured in days. How many days can you survive if your income and ability to work is shut off? And what you find with that is money is one only one way to make that kind of wealth. If you have systems that provide for your needs, that extends the number of days, no matter how much money you have or you don't have. Correct? So that's the kind of wealth I'm talking about, building a life where you can do well no matter what happens. That's non-brittle. So here's my six steps of mindset so that you think the right way about how to do this and how to live. Number one, you just have to accept that everything you're told by the media is exaggerated and always will be, and it's the same for the government and every entity tied into government. No matter what it is, it will be exaggerated. Even if it's bad, don't make it worse. COVID is a perfect example. If, if you doubted that before, you should not doubt it now. If you do doubt it now, I don't know why you're listening. I don't know why you're listening to this show. I mean, really, you should just go ahead and get some wool, paste it on your head and body, practice your ba, get on all fours, and just walk out there and do what your masters say. Clearly, this has been exaggerated. Clearly, this has been exaggerated. One more time, clearly, this has been exaggerated. And that applies to everything. This is why we have videos. This is why we have videos of news anchors sitting in a boat during a flood while people walk ankle deep behind them through the shot and didn't realize it was there. That's why we have that. This is why we have news anchors standing there like the wind's about to blow them away and like five dudes walking behind them looking at them like it's crazy. Because that's what media does. That's what media, If you look at storms, it's a perfect example of how they, no matter how bad it is, they always make it worse. What they do, they drive around the impact area and they look for the worst thing that they can find that they can film. They then film that to the exclusion of everything else And they paint a picture for you as though this is how it is everywhere. Now, there's times when it really is widespread, extreme disaster. But 99 times out of 100, if it's coming out of the mouth of a bureaucrat or it's coming out of the mouth of the media, it's being exaggerated. Just accept that. So the second step then is turn off the effing news. Turn the freaking news off. Just shut it off. Don't watch it. Don't listen to it. It does you no good. It is poison for your freaking brain. You're better off watching reruns of 1950s comedies than the news. Much better off. If you want to tune in from time to time, that's one thing. But on a day-to-day -day basis, do not watch the news. Do not watch commentary that masks itself as news. Just don't. It does you no good. It sets you backward. It holds you in place. It reestablishes fears that you've learned to let go of. Turn off the effing news. I wrote, I wrote, sorry, I, I did a podcast in 2014 called Turn Off the Effing News. I have a link to it in today's show notes. I, I think it'd be a great one to listen to, right? Because if you listen to it, you're like, holy shit, he's talking about now. No, it's 2014, man. There was no COVID. Turn off the effing. And people flipped out when I did that podcast, by the way. Oh, my God. Like, this is the problem with the news. And people's addiction to it. People act as if, if they stop caring, something bad will happen outside their, 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 their sphere of influence. They act as though like their active mental participation in the narrative is critical 
to the survival of the species that is the human being. Do you know what happens when you stop paying attention to the news? Nothing. Outside of your life, nothing. No one knows, no one cares. You're not that important. But you are important enough to stop doing it. Because what happens that's positive is inside your sphere of influence. You actually spend time doing the things you need to do. Number three, realize many people you love are living in fear. Don't turn away from them, but don't let it infect you. So what I said at the beginning was you can't intervene in somebody's life that's living in fear. You can't change that for them. I want to be clear here at the end. I don't mean turn away from them, like don't have anything to do with them, you know, write them off as being stupid or whatever. Feel bad for them. But stop trying to save them. But above all, don't let them infect you. We have family from New York. They were down here to see my son and my grandkids. And it's, it's my, my son's aunt from his birth father. And she was telling me, well, it's, it's, it's bad in Texas, isn't it? I said, what's bad in Texas? She's like, COVID. I'm like, you're from New York. You know that like you're the number two state for deaths per capita in the whole country, right? That you're worse. She didn't know that. She thought we were awful because the news keeps telling her how bad Texas is. Do you know why? Because you can't see Texas from New York, right? It's not Russia from, from, from Sarah Palin's back, backyard, right? You can't see it. It's not there, right? I know she didn't say I, I can see Russia from my house. It's a joke. Get over it, right? <laughs> I have something I could say about jokes when people take it too hard, but I won't. It's a little bit much even for TSP. But, yeah, I mean... I'm not going to turn away from her, and I will explain it to her once. Like, look around. Do you see people falling over the streets dying? No. Okay, it's not what they told you it was. And then I'm done. And I'll be that. I'll be that family member, and I'll be nice to them. But when they start talking their nonsense, I just tune it out. Because so many people that are on the edge here, that are willing to be bold, they let the voices around them. If it's not the media, then it's their own family and friends pull them back into a state of fear. No. Number four, you do what you can to prepare for bad times, whether it's like long-term prep, like, hey, there could be a depression, or whether it's like a storm's coming and I'm going to make sure all these things are in place. And once you do what you can do, be at peace. Be at peace. Go on with living. That, that's that's the, like so important. People are sitting around still today. This has been going on a year now. It's been a one-year anniversary a couple days ago of 15 days to flatten the curve. Let me pee in your boot and tell you it's raining next if you believe that shit. If you believe anything they say anymore, you're just not that smart. I'm sorry. Okay? But it's been a one-year of this crap. And then we still have people that are, like, hanging on every word that comes off the idiot box and paying attention to all the stats and everything and tracking all the data and, oh, my God, and it, It's just ridiculous. You've done what you can do. Whatever you needed to do to adapt to living in the middle of a pandemic, which isn't really a real pandemic, it's a government-demic, right? A gov-demic. That's what we live in, a gov-demic. Whatever you need, you've done. Get on with living your friggin' life. Five, believe in yourself. I know it sounds corny, but it's true. If you believe in yourself, you will figure out what to do. The real sad thing is, all these people that claim to be in fear because of some outer thing, actually what they lack is confidence in themselves because they're domesticated. They have as much confidence as a domesticated cow. 
You're supposed to be more like a lion on the Serengeti, not a cow being willingly led to the slaughterhouse to have a bolt in your head that's afraid to oppose being led in there because, well, you don't know any better and something bad could happen, as though the bolt in your head is not something bad enough. These are, this is the mindset that makes people willingly get on boxcars in the middle of, of, of the Nazi days in Germany. Like there were a lot of people that fought, were drugged, whatever. But there were a lot of people who just well, like won't do anything. Like they're just taking us somewhere else. That's the mindset. It's because they lack belief in their own ability to do something. The people that we know their names from history unanimously believed in themselves and took action when others were fearful. Six. My final bit of advice on this: learn. To be at peace when others are not. It isn't that hard. It really isn't. And it's amazing what it does. There's two responses you generally get from people when you're at peace and others are not. One is admiration. And then it actually influences those people. Those are the people that are at least close enough to, to still being feral humans that when they see you being calm, they're like, oh, well, shit. Maybe I should try this too. But the other response, and it's far more people do this than, than the first one, is they get angry. They get angry. Why aren't you why, why aren't you afraid like we are? Why aren't you why aren't you listening to Dr. Fauci like we are? Because he's a liar. But I digress, right? Because I'm not stupid. Because I'm not conditioned to just be an obedient moron. I just learned something last night. I thought it was freaking insane. Do you know the six-foot rule? If you stay six feet apart, it'll stop the spread of in infection. I always say that's an arbitrary number. It turns out it sort of is, but it sort of isn't. I don't remember the guy's name now, but there was a doctor who came up with this theory about six feet to control the transmission of germs. The only thing about it, the guy's been dead for 100 years. He's been dead for 100 years, and, and we're living with this six-foot rule as though it actually has some sort of credence, that it makes any kind of sense. And when you're at peace and others are not, they get angry because they want you to live in that same state of fear. Misery loves company. Just be at peace. Be at peace and be at peace with other people not being okay with you being at peace. Don't try to fix it for them. You have shit to do. You're supposed to be bold in a, st in a, in a, in a, in a state of fear. You can't run around and try to fix everybody else's shit. You've got enough to do with your own. Find the opportunities in your life and capitalize on them. If they're entrepreneurial, fine. If they're not, I don't care. If you're not capitalizing on opportunities, then you're wasting opportunities. Let me say that again. If you're not capitalizing on opportunities, then you're wasting opportunities. It's amazing to me how many people think that their idea is something that I need to hear, right? I have this idea, man. Don't tell anybody. I have this idea. And I'm like, I'm not even interested. I don't even care. When you start off with it being pitched to me that way, like a lot of people, you know, come, especially when they come to a workshop or whatever, they're paying to be here. I'm going to listen to them, you know. But when they're like, I got this idea, and they, they, I'm like, okay. And they start talking about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Maybe that'll work. Maybe, well, I don't know. Right? But when they're like, well, man, I, uh, I want to tell you this. But, like, would you sign, like, a, a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA? No. Well, I'm not going to tell you. I don't even want to know now. Because you think your idea is that important. Right. When people the way I'll sign an NDA with somebody is if they need me to work with them and if I'm willing to do it, which is so hard to get me to do, where I'm going to be some kind of consultant or something. And they have some sort of actual developed proprietary technology. 
right? But if it's an, if you're in the idea stage, I don't even give a shit. Like, I have time to worry about going after your idea. I, I have a thousand ideas for every one I take a shot at. But I'm always capitalizing on opportunity. That opportunity might be, oh, look at the way that piece of my land has begun to develop. You know, it's ready for me to figure out how to maybe put some additional mulch in and some irrigation and plant some things there. That's an opportunity. The tree, like I said yesterday, is an investment. That opportunity might be, hmm, there's this way I could spin my business into this other revenue stream, but I really don't have time to do it. Maybe I could work with somebody and let them do it. That's an opportunity. I'm not going to take all the opportunities. But if I'm not actively capitalizing on some opportunity on every given day, I'm using that day to waste opportunity. Now, I don't believe in being puritanical with anything. So there's days where I'm like, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to do, I'm going to do, in the words of the great Peter Gibbons, absolutely nothing. And usually it's everything I dreamed it would be. Okay? So there are days to unplug. There are days to relax. There are days to do nothing. But other than those days, something in your life, something in your being, something about who you are should be taking that step, should be accessing an opportunity, or you're wasting the opportunities that are there, and you're wasting your dash. That dash they'll put between the year you were born and the year you died on a tombstone someday, you're burning that dash without capitalizing on opportunity. And again, it's not all about money. It's not all about business. It's teaching your children. It's building your life. It's learning. It's finding joy. All of these are opportunities. And all of these are opportunities that become incredibly abundant when others are fearful. There's never been a time. There's never been a time that I know of where there's been so much irrational fear. I've never seen it anyway. I'm sure that, you know, like during the bubonic plague or something, people were really fearful, and they had reason to be. But in the life of living adults, with the exception maybe of, of the few World War II veterans that were like, you know, on the island of Iwo Jima that are still around and actually saw men in that level of fear in combat, again, with good reason, I think very few living people today have ever seen the type of irrational fear that we have today, especially en masse. The British citizens living in London during the World War II bombings were less fearful than a person today who's 25 years old and in good health and driving in their car by themselves with a mask on. That's horrible, and it's beautiful. It's horrible because it makes me want to weep for the pathetic society that we have created. But it's beautiful in that those of us who have chosen not to participate, have never had a greater opportunity to build the lives we want than right now, this moment. And if you don't agree, I don't know how I can possibly help you. And I don't know how you listen to the show. And I certainly don't know how you made it through an hour of today's. I really don't understand. And I just hope you keep listening. And maybe someday, since I, and that's the thing, like I can do this in mass. I couldn't do this with one person, especially one that was resistant. I can keep pouring it out every day. And that's my opportunity. It's my opportunity to say, hey, you don't have to do this. There's a better way. We wrote that song that we opened the show with every day in 2010. 
there's a better way to do this. Those words were true then. But my God, are they true today? There's a better way to do this. And there's a million ways to do this that are better. It's up to you to find the way that is right for you. My friends, while others are fearful, be bold, be decisive, take action, build what you want. Because if you can do it now, no one can take it from you. No one can take it. it. This is the best time ever. Because even though there's tremendous opportunity, there are difficulties. And things will get better. And those who can build when times are tough, they're freaking unstoppable when they're not. When they get good, even a little bit good. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that we do, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Um, I also have items that I review. Everything's alphabetical there. You can go through and see all the reviews I've ever done. If it's there, I own it and I buy it. And I, I would buy it again if I needed it again. And I use it in my life or I would not recommend it to you. Many of you know, I think almost anybody who's listening to the show for any length of time knows, no, I'm not just a dog owner. I'm a, I love my dogs. My dogs are family members. I've had people actually take exception to that. I'm like pointing at my dog, Charlie, who just walked in when I started this segment and uh, sleeping under my feet right now. And I told one guy one time, I said, you see that dog? When my grandkids spend the night here, when they go upstairs to bed, that dog immediately is like, oh, the kids are going to bed. He goes upstairs. He sleeps at the bottom of that foot of that bed. He puts his ass up against their feet so he can feel them. And he won't move until they both wake up and come downstairs. He will not leave their side. When you do that for me, I will value as much as I value my dog, Charlie. And I think it makes a point. So that means that when I take care of my dogs, I really take care of my dogs. I won't use anything on my dogs that I think will hurt them or harm their health in any way, shape, or form. And I'm also a big believer that dogs don't need to be bathed very often. They really don't. Because they don't. Because they're a dog. They're not you. They're not a person. They don't need a bow in their hair and a blow dryer. You want to do that with your dog? Fine. I'm not going to put you down. I'm just saying they don't need it. However, <laughs> domestic dogs don't live like wild canines, and they don't jump in creeks and stuff like that, and um, they don't get quite the variety of diet and all, which is a big part of dogs being clean is the diet that they eat and the uh, the things that they extrude onto their, their fur, etc. And every once in a while they roll in something or mess with something, and they just don't smell good. And if they're going to live in the house, <laughs> you got to do something. Well, in an effort to do less cold hose water with dogs that don't like it, I went out to find, are any of the waterless pet shampoos good? And I found one called BioGroom a few years ago. It's fantastic. Spray the dog, brush the dog a little bit, rub it in with your hands, send the dog on his way. Around his face and eyes and stuff, you don't want to get it in his face. And I you spray your hands, rub your hands together, and just kind of rub it on like lotion on their face. Beautiful, shiny, healthy, no stink. Um, the first time I used it on Charlie, I don't know what he got into, but he smelled like nasty popcorn and rotten Cheetos. That was the best way I could describe the smell. It was like in his head, you know, and, and, um, you know, my shepherd and my, uh, my little mix, my little pit husky mix, Lucy, they don't like it, but they tolerate it. Charlie's gotten to be where like, Oh, I'm getting sprayed. And I use it on them about once, once or twice a month and it keeps them in great shape. And uh, that and a Ferminator, which is a de-shedding tool that I use, and I use a simple hairbrush. There's a link to, it doesn't even matter. It's the style of hairbrush that I use. They're the ones that, like, you know, they have 
bristles that have little rubber balls on them. They're kind of widely spaced apart. That's like the best grooming dog brush you can get because you just want to kind of brush through their fur. A little bit of brush, a little bit of spray, no stink. And I don't know if you've ever tried to give a 100-pound pit bull mix a bath on a cold day that doesn't want to get a bath, but it's not fun. This is really easy. Um, I totally recommend this. It's got almost 300 reviews on Amazon, 4.5 stars. Check it out. It's called BioGroom. And it doesn't matter what you buy, whether it's listed there or not, as long as you start your online shopping at tspaz.com, you help the survival podcast and the work that we do. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up with our song of the day as we continue through Moody Blues Week. Uh, this song's called Tuesday Afternoon. It's always been a song I've really loved. It's a very peaceful song. It has kind of a slow part and an up-tempo part and mixes back and forth. But it's very peaceful, and to me it's very relaxed and very at peace with the world. On a day that people don't really think of, it's a great day to be this way, right? actually fits the show pretty well, being bold when others are fearful, right? So people love Saturdays or even Sunday mornings, right? But Tuesday afternoon, it's the work day. You ain't even got the hunk day yet, right? So I've always loved this song, and I've always kind of seen it that way. And I've always kind of wondered why it was it came across that way. Well, it turns out, lead singer for the group, can't think of his name now, he wrote the song. Sitting in a field on a Tuesday afternoon with a dog, by the way, fits the segment there. But the dog, and the dog's named Tuesday, which is crazy, but it had nothing to do with the name of the song. It was just it was Tuesday afternoon. And he sat there looking at the sky and just chilling out right after he smoked a doobie. Okay, now it all makes sense. So yeah, the, 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 the anti-cannabis lobby that says like it's going to develop criminal activity or whatever, like this is the result of a dude smoking a doobie on a Tuesday afternoon. Being at peace with himself, enjoying things for what they are, and just living life in the moment. As much as I'm big on capitalizing on opportunities, like I said during this episode, there's a place for this mindset too. It doesn't always require a doobie. And uh, in fact, often I think we can do things vicariously. And this is some one of those songs that I think it transcends the way that one person is feeling so that the other person can feel it as well. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another episode of the Survival Podcast.
trees are drawing me near. I've got to find out why. Those gentle. 